Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our first guest this week is the great Isabella Rossellini. She's being interviewed by our PAL correspondent and Isabella Rossellini superfan, Louis Vertel. Isabella Rossellini was born into European film royalty. She's the daughter of director Roberto Rossellini and actor Ingrid Bergman. And she's probably best known as an actor. She's had acclaimed parts in movies like Blue Velvet and Death Becomes Her and Big Night. Her appearance on 30 Rock as Jack Donaghy's ex is the stuff of legends and memes today. Oh, damn it, Johnny. You know I love my big beef and cheddar. But I mean, it's kind of unfair. Rossellini isn't just a terrific actor. She's a model, a performance artist, an accomplished singer. She's even an academic. Just three years ago, Isabella earned a master's degree in animal behavior from Hunter College in New York City. Most recently, she's lent her talents to voice acting. She's starring alongside Jenny Slate in the movie Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. It's a comedy that mixes animation and live action, based on the viral short from 2010. Jenny Slate plays the film's title character, a tiny talking seashell with red shoes and a single googly eye. Marcel is the subject of a documentary. Isabella plays Marcel's nana, Connie. Connie lives in the backyard of the house Marcel lives in. She's a little forgetful, and as you're about to hear, she's not quite clear on the concept of what a documentary is. Are you making what? A documentary. Oh, it's like it's a like... movie, but nobody has any lines, and nobody even knows what it is while they're making it? Mm. No? That's uh, sort of a way to put it, yeah. No, I just am making a little video portrait. About Marcel? Yeah. A document, a film? Uh, yeah. It's like yeah. the truth, kind of. It's a movie. And it's the truth about Marcel. I mean, I hope so. I guess you could really spin it and make me look like a total. So this is your garden out here, huh? Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. Isabella Rossellini, it's a thrill to talk to you. And it's especially a thrill to talk to you in the context of this movie, because Marcel the Shell is a hard concept to wrap your head around if you're not familiar with the uh, YouTube videos. Right. I, I, when I was offered the role, I went to see the YouTube uh, uh, short films about it, and I found it charming. But most of all, I, I really liked the story of uh, how the film came about. Jen was at the wedding, and she felt a little bit intimidated and started to play with this funny voice. And Dean then created Marcel, and they made a short video that was put in YouTube that went viral. And so they made more videos. And then they were offered a book deal, and now they are making a feature film. And I thought that this was a modern story of how artists come to bring their narrative, come to make films. So I was interested to meet a new generation that starts in YouTube and ends up in the movie theater. And and so Marcel was charming. Uh, it was in, an interesting process. We improvised a lot of dialogue. And so generally as an actor, you're given lines and you memorize them and then you have to make them come out of your mouth in a spontaneous way. Here we were going, we are given an outline. For example, we just heard the clip where uh, I am a shell. So 
and I'm old. I don't know what a documentary is. I don't know the difference between a documentary and a feature film. And they're trying to explain it to me. And so we improvise, but we that clip that was maybe 30 seconds long, we might have improvised for two hours about it. And then Dean selected the words and put it together and then created the animation. So it was a complete different process than a regular film. Yes, and it's unusual how much improvisation is going into this, you know, an animated movie. What, what's your favorite thing that came out of the improvisation on this movie? Um, well, I, I think it, I like to experiment. I like to do things that are new and unusual. And for sure, that was, I've never worked as an actress like this, you know. Again, you're generally given a script that you have to memorize word perfect. And if you change a word, the writer is not happy. And here instead, there was, the writing came after. You said many, 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 many things. And then it was put together by Dean. Um, and it took him two years to go through these hours and hours of, of improvisation. Uh, so it was unusual, but there is a spontaneity. I also think that when you improvise, they, there is a lot of spontaneity, you know, because you're not memorizing anything. And in a stop animation and animation and drawings, uh, maybe the voice has to be incredibly authentic. Uh, the expression of the voice has to be incredibly authentic to bring that character to a real life. So the voice, I think, is very important although we remember the character of Marcel and the grandmother as a drawing. But I think the voice is what gives them the, the, the truthfulness that you believe that they are characters. The process for making this movie took seven years, and you did the voiceover work for this years ago now, I, I know. three years ago, four years ago? Yes, I thought that they were kidding, you know, because they started in YouTube and they were very young. And so I said, well, maybe you know, maybe it was a dream and they'll ne never come to be. Because <laughs> sometimes you do work with a lot of young people and, and they're trying to make a film, but, they, you know, it's so difficult to make a film that never, it never comes to be. Yes, it took seven years. It's incredible. Is there anything that made it into the film that you completely forgot about? I mean, if I recorded something three years ago or four years ago, I can't say I would have a sharp memory of what the movie even was after a while. No, I, 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 the same. I forgot, I forgot what were the improvisation. I remember that we did some improvisation at my farm. I live in a farm, and they wanted to do some improvisation at the farm, and um, um, it didn't make it into the film. But at a certain point, a, a f crow started to go, rah, 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 rah. and because they saw a hawk, and they were chasing the hawk away. Uh, that is what was happening in reality. But that sound allowed me and, and Jenny to improvise. Oh, the crows, let's hide because the crow might eat the shell. And so that also I think Dean occasionally wanted to have something completely new that he would surprise himself, not only the outline. Uh, now Marcel is, the grandmother is trying to convince him to do the interview for television. You know, that was the outline. And we talked and then we improvised about me trying to convince Marcel to be adventurous, to try new things. But I think also Dean sometime needed, because seven years is a long time. So I think also Dean needed to be surprised. And so he did, we did an improvisation and all of a sudden the crow allowed 
him to have a scene where the two of us as Shell were vulnerable to the environment. Crows, mice, dogs. The dog made it. <laughs> and what you're saying is you recorded some of this in Silver Lake in Los Angeles and also yes. at your place on the East Coast. And yes. while that gave Dean plenty of surprises, did it add a, an extra layer of spontaneity for you too? Yes, because, uh, you know, if you improvised for... Uh, we, we improvised not for one or two hours. We improvised for a whole day. We, you know, we were in Silver Lake. They had, I think, a house of a friend. And we stayed there and we would take break for lunch. But Dean wanted to record everything, even lunch, because maybe at lunch we would say something, a sentence. I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat. I've eaten enough that he might use. So he, he constantly recorded everything. I don't know how he had the patience to listen to all these words and... Uh, and edit. I wouldn't have had that patient. It's also satisfying to see you do comedy again, which has been sprinkled somewhat liberally throughout your career, but it's probably not what you're primarily known for. Is it satisfying particularly to be funny? Yes. Although I, uh, you know, yes, it is. I, I, you know, when I do my own films, they're always comical. So I do like, I do like it. (laughs) Is there a particular film you've made where you felt the funniest or TV show appearance? Uh, 30 Rock was pretty funny. Are you going to marry him? Oh, hi. What? Are you going to marry Jack? Ah, I don't know. We've talked about it. I can tell from the way he looks at you that he's serious. (laughs) He's going to get you pregnant right away. I'm sure. (laughs) A little late in life, baby. He can parade around Nantucket. The old thing makes me want to vomit. Oh, no, you know... I can take the models, the roquettes to Shakira, because ultimately I know they are going to leave him. But you, you can actually make him happy. And that makes me want to sit on a knife. 30 Rock in particular taught me something I didn't know about you, because that... I want to say it was during the first or second season. So it's not even like the reputation of that show would have been uh, widely known yet. And it goes at such a, you know, uh, whip smart speed. Was it fun to jump into that particular comic dynamic? And was it difficult? Sometimes I find it difficult to play a a small role because on a set, people become, especially on television series that last so long, five months, six months, they become like a family. And then you come in and everybody knows each other. They are not shy. And, you know, and I am shy. I make mistakes. I get embarrassed. And we are not friendly yet. You're not friends yet. So I find sometimes that playing a small role, it's harder than playing a longer role. Just because you're shy and also uh, there is a mood on the set and there is a style and there is a rhythm um, and you don't know that. And so when you arrive, you have to really quickly adapt and try to guess uh, how they work and adapt. But it's easier if you... if it, It's easier to play a part that is a little bit more substantial than a very you know, that apart that you go for a day or two on a set. So much more still to get into with Isabella Rossellini. When we come back from a quick break, she and Lewis will talk about why she's attracted to working in experimental film. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, our guest is Isabella Rossellini. She is, of course, a beloved actor and performer. She's the star of movies like Big Night and Blue Velvet, and the new comedy Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. She's being interviewed by our friend and correspondent, Louis Vertel. Let's get back into the conversation. Clearly, most of the stuff you've done is experimental in some way, which leads me to believe that you must be largely bored with the things you are offered, that there's not, you know, that experimental edge to everything you get. Well, no, I'm not bored, uh, but I, I, I think there are two main reasons that made me be an experimental film. First of all, I come from experimental film. My father was considered um, an experimental filmmaker. His name is Roberto Rossellini, and he worked right after the war, really changing film, making something that looked like a documentary. But it wasn't a documentary. It was reenacted things that he had seen in his life with actor and non-actor. And his style, his new style of film that he made was called Neorealism, my father was extremely experimental, and so I'm not intimidated into jumping and do something experimental. And then the fact that I was a foreigner and I had an accent, I always felt a little at the margin. I always thought, well, I can't be on a regular big Hollywood film because most of the time there are not that many foreign actors. Uh, they are Anglo-Saxon speaking, but you don't hear many uh, foreigners who have an accent. And so I thought... When something was offered that was a little odd, I thought, well, let me do it because I'm not going to get any of the big films. And, and in fact, I, I did sometimes big film to my total big surprise. <laughs> but I did. I continued to do both. Your mother, for people who don't know and need to be told immediately, uh, was Ingrid Bergman, star of Casablanca, for whom the bell tolls, Notorious, among other unbelievable classics. How likely are you just at any given time to watch the movies of either of your parents? Well, nowadays it's much simpler. Uh, you know, I, uh, they're all in the Criterion Collection, which I absolutely adore, uh, and I'm hooked to it. I watch the Criterion Collection every day. And it's moving to me that I can see my parents' film whenever I want, or, you know, my mom worked with Hitchcock, with uh, Fleming, with Bergman, and if I want to see more of that director, I could easily access today. When I was a little girl, I had to wait for a retrospective in a movie theater to do it. And, so, and they don't do retrospective every year. So sometimes you wait 10 years to finally see, you know, the film that my father did during the war because I was born after the war. And they were very famous film and people talked about it. But I had to wait until they were presented in an art movie theater or in a museum for me to see it. I think I was 12 years old when I saw Casablanca, my mom's film, because it didn't, you know, it, it came out when I was not born. And then finally, when I was 12 years old in Italy, they gave her a, a retrospective of my mom. So I, every night, uh, it was a retrospective every Wednesday night. I remember they showed um, 10 films of my mom. And every Wednesday, for 10 Wednesdays, I saw my mom's Hollywood films. So I'm very grateful that today you can access all this whenever you want. When I think of Ingrid Bergman's filmography, she doesn't have too many, you know, I guess broad comedies that stand out. But one movie I love in particular that she, uh, at first the role seems like it's going to be smaller or less thankless than the other comic roles, but then it really blossoms as Cactus Flower. And I was wondering if you had any particular 
good memories of watching that movie because her personality in that just, I think, flourishes. She's so it's such a joy to watch. She was so happy to play a comedy because they often made her play the romantic lead. Uh, you know, she was she was very beautiful, but uh, she was considered a beauty, an accessible beauty, the, 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 the girl next door. So she always played uh, a little bit the girl next door, the good girl. And she was happy when she had to play a nasty character like in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then as she grew older, and Mama was very simpatic, she was very funny, uh, she could finally also do comedy as she did in Cactus Flower. She's very funny in Cactus Flower. I'm sorry that she didn't do more comedy. And I think she was sorry, too. She would have wished. She wished to have done more. You really remind me of your mom specifically in interviews. When I watch interviews with her, she has the huh? same kind of witty, fun flair. <laughs> and yet on the silver screen, I really can't think of many roles you've done that either she would have taken or would have even been in the realm of possibility for someone like Ingrid Bergman. Do you ever, do, can, do you think of, uh, can you think of any roles you've taken that remind you of your mother? No, but I, I also haven't done films in contrast to my mother, you know, mm -hmm. I think there was a, a new generation of filmmakers. Like my mom, I liked directors that have a very strong hand, that are very author-like. And so once you work with these directors who film, are, they really have their signature, whether it's Hitchcock or David Lynch or Martin Scorsese or uh, Bergman, they, they become very strong signature of the directors. So partially... If I had done a Hitchcock film, maybe you would have said, ah, oh, you know, there is a similarity, but it's the director and we favor these kind of films. I think we, both Mama and I, regard films as an art. And so originality and new points of view becomes fascinating rather than something that you knew, you know, it's going to be commercially successful because he has the good guy, the bad guy, the little romantic. You know, once you do something that has every all the ingredients to make it successful, it's less interesting to us. And it's also probably a, a European tradition. I can't stop thinking about how long ago it was that you recorded this stuff for Marcel the Shell. And I was wondering, just in general, has there been, uh, in particular, a movie you've worked on where you worked on it and then it took however long it took for it to come out, and you were surprised by the final product. Like, in a way, Probably you were... Probably Marcel Dussel has the price <laughs> for that. <laughs> At a certain point, I thought it wasn't going to come out. <laughs> because you've made so many movies where there's a specific um, theatrical feel, and I feel like on the set, you wouldn't have been able to predict what that was, or it must have been described to you, but you couldn't, you know, tangibly see it. You know, for instance, I don't think blue Bel blue velvet could have been described to me in the abstract while making it. Well, this is the, this is the problem that one has, you know. So if you work every day, you more or less starting to understand the style, but the script is never the final product. Um, a script, uh, for example, blue velvet. Yes, the story was there. But the power of the images of David Lynch, who's also a painter, uh, is so powerful. And the film is all this sequence of imagery. Um, it's also the narration. But a narration is not so important for David. Um, in fact, sometimes you can't really follow the story. And yet you are afraid. And yet you, are, you, you feel romantic. So he's interested in the mood and the mystery of what causes that mood. So... 
if you read the script and try to seek narration and try to seek, you're lost. But if you work with David, then you understand something that sometimes cannot be expressed in words, that he's seeking for mood, atmosphere, more than narrative. But it takes a few days to be with the director or other actors to understand their style, their genre, and then to adapt. But this is also the great pleasure of being an actor, is that you really take trip into people's mind, and if their minds are great, like uh, uh, Tina Fey or David Lynch or Bob Wilson, um, it's a fantastic journey. But as you're taking it, you're also hesitant, and you're a bit shy, and you have to... But I am open to experimentation, and I think that's why I always end up with this... uh, experimental film, whether it's Marcel Deschel or Guy Mad in The Saddest Music in the World, or even David Lynch, who when did when he did Blue Velvet, it was considered very avant-garde. It is, wasn't a classic uh, as it is today. Who sent you here? Nobody. I've seen you before. I sprayed your apartment. I took your key. I didn't mean to do anything except see you. What did you see tonight? Tell me. I saw you come in. I saw you talk on the phone. And then? You had undressed. Do you sneak in girls' apartment to see them get undressed? Never before this. Get undressed. I want to see you. Look, I'm sorry. Just let me leave. No way! I want to see you get undressed! The vigor of this movie. How did he create the atmosphere that would produce a movie like Blue Velvet? Well, he produced it by creating enormous friendship and trust because we were talking about uh, rape, ritualized rape, crime, um, a woman who, that I played, a, a battered woman, but he did an incredible um, extreme situation. And then when I m- meet the character played by uh, Kyle MacLallan, uh, Jeffrey Beaumont, I, uh, and he's a younger than I, I become the character placed by Dennis Hopper. I become the executor of the crime on, on Kyle and, and because I exercise power, because I'm powerless um, in front of uh, Dennis Hopper. But with the opportunity to have a younger boy, I can exercise that muscle. So she's crazy. I mean, she's, she's a very convoluted psychological uh, character. And if there wasn't a total trust and a feel of friendship and protection, it would have been very hard to play uh, the part. We're still very good friends, you know, with Laura, Kai, David, and I. We call each other family. No, Laura is also a stone pro in that movie, and it's one of the first things... Uh, starring roles she really had. I, re- I I hope people revisit it also in the future, just specifically for Laura Dern, in addition to all the other great performances. Yeah. But I want to say about Blue Velvet, it's one of the few movies I've seen where I actually find some of it too scary. Like Dennis Hopper <laughs> is too frightening for me to to rewatch. And I obviously you're an intimidating presence yourself in certain ways, but have you ever been uh, just intimidated by the kind of power that an actor brings on set? There are films that I can't watch because I'm too scared, but it's not Blue Velvet, maybe because I've done it. And I, when I watch it, when I watched Blue Velvet, 
I watched it recently because it was an anniversary. I don't know if it was 30 years or 40 years, and it was shown at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, so I went to see it and present it. And I sat down and looked at the film. I hadn't seen it in 20 years. And I thought, wow, it still feels modern. It still feels avant-garde. And that surprised me. But it also feels you... I don't really watch many of the films that I've done because you always get a little nostalgic. You know, you see that scene and say, I remember that day we did this and then we all went to dinner or this happened. And so it brings up a lot of memories uh, and nice memories, but still it's always a little bit sad. I like to look forward instead of backwards. It's interesting that you say you're specifically forward-looking, not anti-nostalgia, but not seeking out nostalgia. And yet you also say you watch the Criterion Collection Every oh, but day. I don't watch my film. I watch <laughs> other. I wa- I'm. I love to see. A, so the Criterion Collection. What I love is that it is really treats films like an art. I can't say that about Netflix and Amazon. I'm grateful that all these other platforms you can see a lot of films, but they are not curated. It's a bin with everything, and if unless you know what you're looking for and how to put an order. They certainly don't give you any indication. And Amazon is the stupidest thing in the world, as something called trivia. You press a little button and it tells you the mistake in continuity. That enrages me that you can look at a film of John Ford or Hitchcock, and the only thing that came, and they paid somebody to look at the stupidity, and, and you missed a big picture. These are the new Michelangelos, these are the new Raffaello, these are the new Picasso. Cinema has to be recognized as an art. And we're just saying, oh, look, there's this little thing that is a mistake. Who cares? You never find that in Criterion. Criterion treats cinema with enormous respect. And also it teaches you to watch films because you watch, you select a director and you find interviews with the director, with critic, with actors, and and it's very well curated. So it gives you an enormous satisfaction. And I've seen more films because I might watch, I don't know, a Fellini film, Armacord. But then because they give me so much information, I might see also another film of Fellini that might have not been very successful. But they give me the key to understand what was the search that Fellini was making. And maybe it is not terribly successful in this case, but it is still interesting. So I I am a huge fan of Criterion Collection, and I hope that Amazon and Netflix will learn from them to do the similar curation of of their collections. Have there been any other satisfying deep dives of directors you've enjoyed recently? Oh, I've done it. I started with COVID, so now and I continue it. So now it's a couple of years that I and I have a film group. And I watch more film than the film. At the beginning, we watched, you know, four films a week, and then we would do Zoom and comment. Um, and now everybody's back to work, so we do one film a week, and sometimes we take a break because everybody's got too busy. Uh, now we have a break in July because everybody's traveling on the holidays or work, so we resume in August. But I generally watch more films because I wake up very early in the morning and watch Criterion Channel. So, uh, and then, I mean, other people suggest things, but I think I'm the one that suggests most. And I'm the daughter of Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini, so I know a little bit more than the others about cinema. Uh, It should be noted that you live on a farm with some delightful animals that I've seen on your Instagram time and again. What does living on a farm provide 
an actor? Do you get something specific or spiritually or otherwise from living where you live? No, I also ha- I'm also a scientist. I'm an ethologist. I've studied animal behavior and conservation. So I want to be with animals. And in fact, when I write as an author or a director, all my work, whether it's uh, green porn or now I have a new monologue that is coming out calling uh, Darwin Smile, it's always about animals. So as an actress, directors can use me for whatever they see in me. Uh, They correspond to their character. But when I write and I direct my own things, it's always about animals. So living in a farm for me is my lab where I'm close to them and I can see it. So I enjoy, enjoy running a farm. What was the beginning of this particular interest? Like what was the moment you, I don't know, a light bulb went off and you thought, I need to get into this in a, in a serious academic way. Well, I always liked animals since I was a little girl. And then my father, when I was 14 years old, gave me a book that is called um, King Solomon's Ring by Conrad Lawrence. Conrad Lawrence it was the founder of this new science of animal behavior, etology, and he won a Nobel Prize for it. And father read the book, and he knew that I loved animal, and he gave it to me. And and yes, that was the little lamp that went on. And I said, I want to study this. But when I was 20, in my 20s, and the right moment to go to college, and it wasn't really in Italy, it wasn't yet formalized. It was zoology, there was biology, but I was interested in behavior. I, I was intimidated to do a lot of chemistry and all that. And then anyway, I became a model And I loved that too and became an actress. But then as I grew older, and so there was less work as a model and as an actress, and ethology now is presented in schools, I went back. I had time. And my children were grown up. They were moved out of the house. So I went back. So I am am a scientist recently. I graduated. I got my master's degree three, four years ago. When I think of like the kindred spirits in my own life, they happen to be people who have literally like the same job. Like they're also entertainment obsessed comedy writers. Now, I'm wondering who are the people you have found to be kindred spirits because absolutely nobody has had the career track you've had and the leaps <laughs> between universes you've had and the you know the lineage you had. So I was wondering who are the people, I guess specifically in show business, you've found yourself really relating to. Well, I'm very friendly with David Lynch and, and Laura Dern, very. We, we, we love each other. My best friend is a teacher at Columbia University on human rights and international laws. I have a friend who is uh, Camilla, who is a film editor, um, another very good friend of mine is a nurse who uh, is now had a you know in his 60 and he's taking a PhD in alternative medicine meditation and all that that also is fascinating and very experimental um so these are my friends I think people would be surprised to learn that your first movie was in fact with your mother and in fact you were co-starring with Liza Minnelli who's being yes. directed by her father Vincent Minnelli what was that experience like as a you know a, as a first uh, big screen acting performance. It was pretty difficult, you know. It's very um, so. I didn't think I was going to be an actress, but uh, uh, Mama often made films away, and so we didn't see her for two or three months. And finally, she made a film in Rome, Italy, where we lived, and she was delighted to play an Italian character 
the Contessa Casati, and she spoke Italian beautifully, my mom, because we were Italian, my dad is Italian, and we had mama home for three months. Uh, and uh, so my sister, I have a twin sister, Ingrid, went every day on the set, and mama played a character of a kind of a crazy lady that would put a lot of makeup and never take it off. So her eyes are all, you know, full of mascara. So my sister helped her with that makeup because you didn't need a good makeup artist. You needed a bad makeup artist. And my sister Ingrid could be with my mom all day long and she was very happy. And mama, um, she dies in the film and people tell um, me and my mom that we resemble each other. And mama thought it would be interested that while she died, I played a nun that goes to her bed that she sees her face herself young. Um, and so she asked me to play the role and Vincent Minelli liked the idea and Liza accepted it. But I was so intimidated to play with everybody and I didn't speak English very well and Ruthin was in English. I had very few lines, but I still remember it as um, very nightmarish. And of course the producer had photographers to because it was a little bit of a story that could appear in gossipy newspaper. Oh, Isabella Rossellini, the daughter who resembles a mom. This play. So I remember the day being very paralyzingly intimidating, <laughs> but I'm glad I've done it. What was it like to witness Liza Minnelli and her father on that set? Were there any parallels between your relationship with your father? Or was it like looking into a totally different universe? It was looking into a different universe. Vincent Minnelli is completely different than my father. Also, he was quite old. I could see the love of Liza to her dad and the devotion to her dad. And I could understand that because I am also a devoted uh, daughter to my father. So in, in that, I saw the tenderness. I think the father was old and had not worked for many years. And Liza wanted to make a film with her dad. And she had just gotten the Oscar for this extraordinary film, Cabaret. I did a Bob Fosse retrospective with <laughs> in, my, in my early morning. And, uh, um, and so she, in that moment, she had the power to make her dream come true, which was to work with her dad. Because she had worked with her mom a long time, many times. We'll finish up with Isabella Rossellini after a quick break. When we return, she's accomplished so much, singing, writing, acting, modeling. What's next? Louis Vertel gets to the bottom of it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, were you a reader as a kid? Like maybe you read a lot of fantasy novels. Or horse girl books. We know how it is. But now you're an adult and you miss reading. You're so busy and you can't figure out how to get back into books. We're Reading Glasses and we're here to help. Yeah, we'll give you advice to figure out what books you love or learn to stop reading books you don't even like. We're really big proponents of dumping that book. Dump that book. But most importantly, we'll help you fall back in love with reading. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Isabella Rossellini. She's an actor, model, performance artist, and so much more. She's had unforgettable parts on 30 Rock and in movies like The Saddest Music in the World, Blue Velvet, and more. You can hear her voice talent in the new film, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. She's being interviewed by our correspondent, Louis Vertel, who also writes for Jimmy Kimmel Live and co-hosts the great podcast, Keep It. 
Let's get into the rest of their conversation. Another strange moment in your filmography that I've always been curious about is White Nights. Uh, you don't get too many movies with someone like Mikhail Baryshnikov and uh, Geraldine Page and uh, Gregory, Gregory Hines. Hines. Yeah. And Was Helen that, Mirren. And, yeah. Right. Helen Mirren right at the, uh, sort of the onset of her becoming the grand dame we know. What was that experience yeah. like? That was really great. I, um, it was one of the first films that I've done. I've actually done it before Blue Velvet. Um, I've been a model and a very successful model, but I wasn't thinking to become an actress because my mom was Ingrid Bergman and I thought, you know, I'll always be compared to her. I'll never be good enough. And maybe it's better if I just stay a model. And and then I was interested in animal, always this dream to eventually make films about animals. And I was following that path. But my mom herself said, you know, you should try to make films. She was dead by the time I did White Nights. But she always told me, you know, because I've been offered film and I always turned them down. And she said, just the adventure of it. You should just do one for the adventure of it. And then White Nights came. Taylor Ackford, a fantastic director, um, offered me the part. And he was with Misha Berishnikov. And I played Gregory Hines' wife. I would play a Russian um, that Gregory Hines marries, a Russian woman, comes to live in Russia. And um, I met them. I liked them. I'm a very good friend of Barishnikov, and I was a very good friend of Gregory Hines, who died really too young. Um, and so I dared uh, doing the film just to see. I remember working with a fantastic photographer called Richard Avedon, and he said the same thing as my mom. He said, you know, they're offering you a film and you're turning it down just because you're afraid of being compared to your mother. But that's nothing. And it's a new director, it's another actor, it's a new era. And you, you prevent yourself from having an extraordinary adventure and knowing all these incredibly talented people. And I thought he was right. And so I did the film. And then after White Nights came Blue Velvet. And Blue Velvet established my reputation as an actor, although it was very controversial, but it established my reputation as an actor more than White Knights. Do you take anything still from your years as a model? What was the lasting impact for you personally on, you know, being such a successful model for Lancome? And uh, did it add anything to your uh, acting arsenal? Oh, my God, everything. A lot. I mean, it's very similar. You know, Avedon said, you know, I... Modeling is a little bit like being a silent movie star. I'm not photographing your nose, your eyes, your perfect mouth. I'm photographing emotion. There is no beauty without emotion. So it was acting. I was acting in front of the camera of Bruce Weber, Peter Lindbergh, Stephen Meisel, Fabrizio Ferri, uh, Avedon, Penn. But you have no words because there is not a dialogue when you do still photos. And, and, and that also made me think, well, but if I am a successful model, maybe I can evolve and become an actress. And, and I did. And then when I become an actress and you work with many directors, that, that helps you say, oh, I always wanted to make films about animals. That experience helped you learn and evolve to become a writer and director. So everything leads to other things. Speaking once more about your mom's filmography, a, a movie I watched with a bunch of my friends that you would think would just play like an austere drama where we all sat in silence. But in fact, we were screaming at the TV, loving it so much, being in the movie, is Autumn Sonata. 
and <laughs> the the intensity of that drama, but also the like the, the power of both their personalities. We're talking about Ingrid Bergman and Lee Volman. I was wondering if that movie had any particular, um, if you had any particular love for that movie, since I I personally now find it to be a scream. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you say that. You know, it's interesting. It was done as a serious movie. I mean, Igmar Bergman doesn't do comedy. But um, it was shown recently at the Berlin Film Festival, and Liv Ullman was there to present it. And I was the president of the festival, so I went, you know, as an homage. Of course, it was my mom. It was Liv Ullman. And uh, I talked, uh, I presented the film with great reverence, and then Liv Ullman came and talked, and she said, she made me laugh so much. She said, well, Egmar Bergman never really reconciled himself with the fact that women have career. He made a film about a woman who had a big career and uh, uh, therefore she neglected her daughters. And the film is all about that. And she told a very funny story. There is a big scene in the film where Liv Ullman, who plays my mom's daughter, has a long monologue and she lays it out to the mother how much you neglected me like what you've done to your family in the name of your career and all this and so the camera they first did the close-up of Liv Ullman she had all these words to remember and so they started with that and then when they reversed the camera and mother had to react uh, Bergman said how now Liv is going to do the same thing how would you react and my mama said I would slap her what you can't slap her Mama said, I would slap her. It's a boring daughter. I do my career. So she took the defense of women that had the career, and she started fighting with Bergman. And Lee Woolman said Bergman was not used to be contradicted because every it was revered as a great genius. And they storm out, the two of them. You could hear them scream in the hallway, and everybody in the set was looking at each other. And then mothers came back and did the scene. And Lee Woolman said... I couldn't believe this teaching, not only of acting, but this teaching of humanity, because my mom played a character with, with just a rage. So she wanted to slap the daughter who was accusing the mother, you've done this, look at me, poor people, blah, blah, blah. And, and the rage that women have to having to swallow always the accusation of... Uh, you know, that the first role you have is your family, is bringing up the children. And if you do anything that it isn't just that, um, you are you're punished for it. And you see the rage in, in my mother's eyes. And, uh, and that was a big lesson for Liv. And I guess my final question is, do you have a, a dream personal project you'd like to do in the future, maybe concerning animals, because I, I really think there should just be some sort of Instagram live feature where we watch Isabella Rossellini just monologuing about things we don't know about animals. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, this farm for me is a lab. It's a lab of ideas. It's not only my lab of ideas, it's a other people's lab of ideas. A friend with an artist, Leah Chavez, who has um, medicinal plant and uh, uh, she's creating teas and she's creating oils uh, uh, and it's quite interesting her research and Patty Gentry who is renting three acres out of my 30 uh, has been a chef for 25 years and now she's growing these absolutely incredibly vegetable 
for great chefs, but also for the community. They can come and buy her extraordinary tomatoes and peas. I always say she's the Picasso of vegetables. I am very interested now on my chickens, but also on my on fiber and wool, and the fact that there is a lot of breeds of animals, um, sheep. You know, there is the merino sheep, and that's almost like a monoculture. It's a very soft wool, and it's great, and that's the only sheep there is around. But there is a lot of other breeds that are forgotten, and I have some breeds here um, that are endangered. Breeds, not the species is not endangered. It's the breeds, as if we decide to just have Labrador and we will neglect all the other dogs, so you lose uh, the pugs, you lose the dark sound, you lose the... Um, Chow chows, you lose the hunting dogs, you lose a hunt, herding dog, and you just have Labradors. You lose a lot of talent, you lose a lot of things. So my collection of animal at the farm is becoming more and more about these endangered breeds um, of farm animals and uh, study their benefit. And I'm creating association with Parsons School of Designs and other school of fashion so they can come, the student can come and look at the different walls and decided to maybe work with small farm. You know, what we've done with farm to table might be done with fashion, you know, farm to fashion. So that's my next, next experiment. That seems like a perfect ex experiment. I can't imagine anybody else uh, fronting that but you. So I'm thrilled <laughs> when it finally comes to fruition. <laughs> Thank you again for this chat. My God, what a, what a pleasure to talk about your career, your, your family, everything you do, everything you are. Thank you so much. It was fun to talk to you. What a pleasure. Isabella Rossellini, her latest movie, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, is very sweet and funny. You should definitely check it out. And our thanks to our correspondent and friend, Louis Vertel, for interviewing her. Louis is, as we mentioned earlier, the co-host of the podcast, Keep It, which you can download wherever. If you're a Twitter user and you do not follow Louis on Twitter, you are using the service wrong. Uh, go follow Louis Vertel on Twitter. He's one of the great geniuses of the medium. So funny. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I actually got out of the house this week. I went to Porter Ranch, deep in the valley, to go to the 80th birthday party of friend of Bullseye and soul legend Swamp Dog. It was great. I got to hang out with Swamp. Uh, they're making a documentary film about him, and they repainted his pool with a giant painting of him riding a rat. Uh, I hung out with Vernon Reed, the great guitarist. I met Ira from Yola Tango, who had been on this show 20 years ago, maybe, and I had never met him in real life. Oh, it was a great time. It was great. Uh, Swamp has a new record coming out soon. It's a bluegrass album, and I could hardly imagine a better 80-year-old psychedelic soul singer to make a bluegrass record than Swamp Dog. So keep your eyes peeled, or your ears, I guess. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fund is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for letting us use it. 
thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Special thanks to the great Louis Vertel for interviewing Isabella Rossellini and to Delaney Hefner for recording Rossellini at her farm in upstate New York. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in those places. Follow us. We share our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 